0: Rusty, he don't have to say bye. He could come with me. I'd love to take Brent and Jessica back especially with me. Rusty, you might be able to stay here, but I'll take uh a just kidding. It is good to be here. I want to thank everyone for their hospitality. It's been a great week for myself, my family. have enjoyed getting to know you, spending time with you at the conference, and of course at the party last night. Some of you I even met on Thursday. I, we can talk about that later in a little bit of a more painful way. I met some of you on Thursday night, but we had a good time this week. So thankful for all the hospitality. But tonight, or this morning, excuse me, I'm still thinking it's in the evening. This morning we are looking to the book of Philippians, book of Philippians chapter 3. We're looking at verse 12. The book of Philippians is a wonderful book. It's it's a letter that's been entitled The Letter of Joy, and I love it so much. In fact, I named my second daughter after this letter. The Apostle Paul is in prison as he is writing this letter, and yet throughout the entire thing he talks about how joyful he is over and over and over again. And the reason why he is so joyful is that Christ is at the forefront of his mind. No matter what he is doing, no matter what's happening to him, no matter the pain and the suffering he is enduring... He is rejoicing because he knows Christ. And because Christ knows him, he is rejoicing in the advancement of the gospel. Even when there's difficulties, as we come into chapter 3, which is where we are this morning, he writes about some heretics who have made their way into the Philippi, and they are teaching a salvation by works, a salvation by faith plus circumcision, by faith plus the keeping of the law. And the apostle in the opening verses of chapter 3 repudiates that. And what does he tell us? He tells us that our righteousness is not found through works of the law. If our righteousness were to be found in our performance, then he would have it, he says. I was a Pharisee. Before the law, I was blameless. You want to talk about zeal? I was more zealous than anyone. I even persecuted the church in my zeal for the law of God. I thought I was doing it right. And yet, he says, all these accomplishments that I had in Judaism, I consider them to be absolutely worthless. And more than that, I consider them to be loss. It's a financial term. They are damaging to me. Instead, what I have found, he says, is a righteousness not my own derived from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. It is a righteousness from God, he says. That depends on faith. And I just want to tell you right here at the outset before we ever get started that if you are here this morning and you are outside of the kingdom of God, the way into the kingdom of God, the way into the family of God and the fellowship of the saints, is not based upon your performance. You don't accomplish it. The righteousness that you need is not one of your own producing. The righteousness that you must have is a gift from God on the basis of faith if you would stand right with God today, it would be because you have believed in Jesus Christ. And God will give to you a righteousness. He will give to you a perfect righteousness, a forever righteousness. He will clothe you in the righteousness of His own Son. As 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. It is in Jesus Christ we become righteous. But now as we move to verse 12, which is where we are this morning, that does not mean that works have nothing to do with our walk with Christ. Works follow, follow our faith in Christ. Works are produced, really, by our faith in Christ. So now, as he comes to verse 12, he starts describing what the Christian life looks for him now. And at first he recognizes that he has not obtained perfection. Listen to what he says in verse 12. He says, not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brothers, I do not consider myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on. "...toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let us, therefore, as many as are perfect, think this way. And if in anything you think differently, God will reveal that also to you. However, let us keep walking in step with the same standard to which we have attained. Brothers, join in following my example and look for those who walk according to the pattern that you have in us. For many walk of whom I have often told you and now tell you even crying, even with tears." They are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. They set their thoughts on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory by His working through which He is able even to subject all things to Himself." Therefore, my brothers, loved and longed for, my joy, my crown, in this way stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You for Your Word and its challenges to us. Help us to see this morning that You have not called us to sit up on the sidelines. You have not called us to live our lives... uh, in, in in laxity or complacency. But instead, you have called us to pursue the goal that lies before us, to have within us a strong desire to be like you, to live in holiness in subjection to you as our Lord. Father, put that desire within our heart today, and by your Holy Spirit, empower us to do it, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if I were to ask you this morning, what are the goals of your life? What would you say? You know, many of us, if we were to be asked that question, we would probably think in a secular context. We would think something to do with our work, something to do with, uh, you know, some sort of accomplishment that we could achieve in our field, something we want to do in this life. Maybe we have a bucket list of items, things we would like to do, places we would like to go and see. Before we die. Maybe it's a retirement idea. We want to get a certain amount in our 401k or whatever it is that would enable us to retire. And these would be the goals of our life. But as we have studied the Puritans over the last two days, what we have seen is that the Puritans understood that there was no divide between a religious life and a secular life. And it is my fear that we often live with the idea that there is such a divide that we think of the Christian life as something that we do or attend to, especially on the weekends, but then the rest of our lives are lived pursuing secular goals and accomplishments, even though those things are not bad, of course. But there is no distinction, folks, between a secular life and a religious life. In all of our life, whether it be our work, whether it be our hobbies, our recreation, or whatever it is, Our lives are to be lived in pursuit of Christ. That everything, even every thought, is to be taken captive to the lordship of Jesus Christ. The Puritans certainly understood this. All of their lives was lived in pursuit of holiness, in pursuit of Christlikeness. likeness. And did you know, folks, that this was the purpose for your salvation? Oftentimes when we think about why we are saved, Brent and I were having this conversation just yesterday, I believe it was. We often think in the context of just about going to heaven as though our salvation was just about buying a ticket that takes us to a certain place. But our salvation is far more than enabling us to go to heaven even though perhaps that is, at least in some ways, the greatest gift that we are given in salvation. But the Bible is very clear that you are saved to a purpose. In Ephesians 1 verse 4, we are told, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. In other words, God, before He ever created the world, elected a certain people whom He was saved. And this is why. That we should be holy and blameless before Him. God chose us that we would be holy. And Romans 8, 29, for those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed into the image of His Son, that He might be the firstborn among many brethren. You were predestined in order that you might be like Jesus, in order that you might become like Christ in holiness, in godliness. Even in this letter in the first chapter, in verse 6 of chapter 1, He writes, "...and I am sure of this, that He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus." This is the goal, that God Himself, who began the good work of salvation, is going to bring it to completion. I know it's going to happen because He predestined it to happen. And yet, even though we know that to be true... Any idea of let go and let God in the Christian life is to be rejected immediately. There is this idea, well, if God's going to do it, He's going to do it. I guess I don't have a part to play. But that is totally opposite of what this apostle is teaching us here in Philippians chapter 3, isn't it? There is a calling upon us in this text to look at Him as an example before us and to imitate Him in His pursuit of holiness. This was a man who by the power of the Holy Spirit was committed to Christ. This is a man who in chapter 1 would say to live is Christ, to live is to serve Christ, to live is to glorify Christ, and to die is gain because why? I get to go and be with Christ. All of his life, even his death, is all about pursuing Christ. And yet what he tells us here in chapter 3 is that he is still pursuing. He doesn't have it yet. He hasn't reached Christ's likeness. He hasn't arrived at total sanctification. And so his whole life is lived in pursuit of that goal and he calls you and I here today to imitate him in that. To imitate him in pursuing Christ, Christ's likeness. Now, There are four primary points I want to bring to your attention this morning. Now if you were at the conference in the last couple of days, I told you that the Puritans were known for preaching very long sermons. Jonathan Edwards would often preach for two hours. When your wife complains that you're preaching too long like Jonathan Edwards' wife did, you're probably preaching too long. I'm going to try not to do that today. But I am going to give you four primary points from this text. First, I want us to see this life of pursuit. Second, I want us to see that this pursuit involves mature thinking, Christian maturity. Thirdly, I want us to see that in this pursuit we must follow the right examples. And fourthly, in this pursuit we must have our minds fixed on heaven, our minds fixed on Christ. Let's look at the first one, this life of pursuit, verse 12. He says, Not that I have already obtained it, or have already become perfect, but I press on, so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brothers, I do not consider myself as having laid hold of it yet, But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead. I want you to notice that Paul right away acknowledges that he has not already obtained this yet. Here is a man who is perhaps the greatest Christian who ever walked the planet. The most Christ-like man who ever lived. And yet his admission is, I have not yet arrived. Folks, if the Apostle Paul hasn't arrived, where do we stand today? Now, I don't know about you, Rusty, but I've never encountered Christian perfectionism before. I've never met anyone who claimed that they were perfect, even though this used to be something that was fairly popular, especially following John Wesley and others, and Pelagius also. But I've never met anybody that was a perfectionist. Would anybody here today say that you are perfect? You have arrived at perfect sanctification, total sanctification, that right now sitting here today, it's like we're sitting next to Jesus. Well, there was one man that believed this about himself. He went and had lunch with a pastor one morning. And he told this pastor, you wouldn't believe it. He said, I have arrived at perfection. I haven't sinned, the man said, in seven years. Seven years without sin, the man said. I mean, isn't that amazing? Have you ever met someone who hadn't sinned in seven minutes? Let alone seven years? Well, it just so happened that in the course of their meal together, that the waitress was bringing out this sinlessly perfect man's meal, and she proceeded to trip and spill it all in his lap, to which this sinless, most Christ-like man walking the face of the earth stood up and began to curse her in the restaurant, to which the pastor who was sitting with him looked at him and said, Well, there goes your streak, (laughs) seven years out the window. Christian perfectionism is a heresy that should be rejected, folks. You have not arrived. And if you think you're close, you're probably further away than what most people would be if you think you're actually getting close. We probably need to do something about our pride and self-righteousness if we believe that we are getting close. Well, the Apostle Paul knows he's not close. And so he says, this is what I'm doing. Christ has made me His own. And so I want to make Him my own. Christ has grabbed me. And so I want to lay hold of Him. We belong to Christ. And so I want to know Him more. I want to walk with Him more. That's what he says. He uses a word here, press on. It's a very interesting word. It's the word dioko. It means to rapidly and decisively move towards an object. To move rapidly and decisively toward a goal. What goal are you moving rapidly and decisively towards? Is it being like Jesus? A very interesting thing about this word Earlier when he was writing about his zeal, he mentioned persecuting the church. The same word that he used in how he chased after the church is the same word he uses now in how he chases after Christ. What a change that God has wrought in this man's heart. Now I am moving decisively, rapidly. I am dedicated. I am focused. This is my goal, to grab hold of Jesus, to be more like Him, to know Him more, to look like Him more, to be conformed even more into His image. This word even has a history to it. It describes a sprinter, a man running a race. Do any of you ever raced? You've been a sprinter? You competed in athletics in that way? Paul describes himself as an athlete who is striving forward, moving towards the finish line. And he says, here's what I do. I forget what lies behind as I strain forward to what lies ahead. In this race that I'm running, I'm forgetting those things that lie behind me. What things are he talking about? Well, there could be three options here. One of those options could be his previous life in Judaism, which he's already described. Paul Says those things that I once considered to be a source of confidence for me. Now I forget them. Those things are—they didn't bring me anything actually in Christ. So I forget them and I push ahead. I don't think that's the best view here. There's a second option that I believe it's maybe this, and even a combination of the third. But another option would be his success in following Christ. You know, this is a man who had had great success in ministry. I mean, writes the majority of the New Testament. Planted, how many churches, how many people came to faith in Christ through the ministry of the Apostle Paul during his life? You know, if you were someone who had had as much success as the Apostle Paul, it would be easy to kind of sit back and rest and think, Wow, hopefully, humbly, look what all God has done through me. It would be easy to become prideful at that point too, wouldn't it? Maybe the Apostle Paul talks a little bit about that in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. But Paul is saying perhaps... I don't sit here and rest on my successes in the Christian life even. I forget those things which are behind me. Think of it this way. We're talking about athletics. The Apostle Paul likes to use athletic analogies. Let's use another. Let's take a championship boxer for the example. Here's a man who works his whole life towards the goal of winning the world championship in boxing. And he fights hard and he works hard. Finally, he gets his opportunity and he wins. And he gets his goal and he has the world championship belt wrapped around his waist and then he goes home and even though there's another fight scheduled and he's got to defend that title, now he rests. He thinks he's already arrived and he doesn't train as hard. He doesn't work as hard. He doesn't pursue like he once did. And he shows up to defend his belt and he loses because he rested on his success. The Apostle Paul says, I'm not going to do that no matter what is behind me, no matter what has been accomplished, no matter what the Holy Spirit has used me to do. Still more. I want to push forward even more. James Boyce tells the story of David Livingstone, who was living in England after having worked many years as a missionary in Africa. Someone asked him the question, and David, where are you going now? This is how he responded. He said, I am ready to go anywhere, provided it be forward. Always forward. Never resting. Never content. It's interesting. In chapter 4, the apostle talks about contentment, the importance of contentment. But there is a sinful kind of contentment, isn't there? And contentment that says, I'm good just the way I am. I know enough of Christ. My Christian life is just fine the way it is. Paul says it's never just fine the way it is. Pursuit always. Now I think there's a third option here that I believe speaks to the church today. The Apostle Paul might be forgetting and talking about his past failures. As I'm pursuing Christ, I put out of my mind all the times I have failed in my pursuit of Christ. How many of you are carrying around guilt for past sins? How many of you struggle with assurance of salvation because you carry out carry around guilt for past failures. You know, this is why we need to preach the gospel to ourselves every day, isn't it? I'm a very imperfect man. And we've already acknowledged, haven't we, that everybody sitting here, we are very imperfect people. And for anyone who thinks that perhaps they're getting close to being more like Jesus, the problem is we don't really understand how sinful we are. We, we might talk about these big things. I, I used to do this really big thing. I don't do that anymore. I used to do this thing. I don't do that anymore. But folks, when we start talking about contentment like he does in chapter four, we don't even think about discontentment, do we? We don't even think about complaining as he does in chapter two. We don't even think about all of our self righteousness, our pride. We don't think about all the times, it's not only things that we have done, it's things we failed to do. We don't realize how sinful we actually are. But when you woke up this morning and, and you were moody and you fussed at your wife or you fussed at your husband, that's enough to condemn you before God for all eternity. If We have violated the law in one point. What does that mean? Guilty of all of it. And so we have to preach the gospel to ourselves every day. There is a lot of, lack of a better word, there's a lot of junk in my past. There's a lot of sin in my past. There's going to be sin in my future. I pray that the Lord will protect me from having a great moral failure, but I know that I'm not above that. But I can't push forward if I'm still carrying around the burden on my back, as we saw demonstrated last night with Christian. The burden is laid down at the foot of the cross, and there it stays. In Christ, I am forgiven of all of my sins, all of my past sins. They've been forgiven, carried away perfectly in Christ Jesus. And you say, wait a minute, what about my future sins? They too have been carried away at the cross of Jesus. Jesus died and thus in Hebrews 10, He is able to make perfect all those who draw near to God through Him. I say again, as we said as we began, if you are in Christ Jesus right now, you stand perfect. and Do not allow the guilt of past sins continually keep your eyes focused back. Paul forgets what lies behind. He pushes forward to what lies ahead. This forgetting by the way, it's not natural, it's willful. He makes a conscious effort to leave it all in the past as he strains forward. Straining by the way is even a stronger word than the word for pressing on. The word straining here means to exert oneself to the uttermost, to stretch out, to stretch out. Again, it's, we see this in athletics. It's, it's the weightlifter who pushes to the extreme, maybe even goes to failure on the last rip. It's the runner who is reaching and straining out for that finish line. Perhaps he's, he's passing the baton to the one in front of him and he's reaching out as far as he can, exerting maximum effort as he is pushing forward. This is the Christian life. Maximum effort. In chapter 2, verse 12, he says, work out your own salvation with fear and with trembling. Work it out. Push forward. Maximum effort. Is that the way you're living your Christian life today? Are we content with our sins? Are we content with where we are? He says the same thing in verse 14. He he says, "I, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. What's that prize of the upward call? It's the prize of being like Jesus. Now the call he mentions here could be that initial call, when we were first called to Christ uh, for this purpose, or it could be the final call when that day will be realized, when we will actually be like Jesus. Whatever the case, he's saying, I'm pressing on for that goal. There is no sidelines. There's no timeouts. You don't hand the baton to the other while you take a water break. We press on toward the goal. Again, I told you that the apostle likes to use athletic analogies. Listen to 1 Corinthians nine twenty four. He says, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Run in such a way that you're trying to win. He says, every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. What's he talking about? Maximum effort. Like a boxer, I'm not just shadow boxing. I am battling against my opponent, which in this context is himself. I discipline my body so that it obeys me and I don't obey its passions. Even the, the Apostle Paul recognizes I don't want to be disqualified. He understands that it's possible even for him. Even for him. This is this effort we are talking about, like an athlete training for an imperishable wreath, but we are pursuing a or a perishable wreath. We are pursuing an imperishable one. So we work hard, we we strain, we strive. Now in verse 15, he tells us. This is the way that mature Christians think. Let us, therefore, as many as are perfect, think this way. And if anything, you think differently, God will reveal this also to you. Now, there's a lot of talk about Christian maturity, which is the meaning of the word perfect there. What is Christian maturity? I don't know why this is, but in reform context, we seem to think that Christian maturity is how much doctrine I know. We seem to think that Christian maturity is all about orthodoxy. That, well, if, if if you can come up here and, and we can have a debate on Calvinism or on covenantalism versus dispensationalism or whatever we want to talk about and, and I can talk, talk start talking to you about superlapsarianism and infralapsarianism and all the other things that you're all looking at me like, I have no idea what that is. We could, people think that this is, Christian maturity. It's how much I know. You know, there's a lot of uh, immature people who know a lot of things. There's a lot of unbelievers who know a lot of things. Christian maturity is not just orthodoxy. It's not just having the right knowledge. It's not just about being able to be the Bible answer man. Christian maturity is actually putting what we know into orthopraxy. It's putting what we know into how we live. If what you know does not impact the way that you live, you are not a mature Christian. I don't care how much you know. When Paul speaks of maturity here, he says the way that the mature think is that they want to be more like Jesus. They want to be more like Jesus. That's Christian maturity. Is that your goal? Is that our desire? Thankfully, God's grace, we have a promise here that if we think differently than this, God will reveal that to us. Isn't that great? God's going to show us the error of our thinking and by His Spirit, He's going to lead us into this right type of thinking. He's going to lead us to know that this is the way that the Christian is called to live in pursuit of Christ in every area of his life. That at work, no matter what I'm doing, my co-workers need to know that I'm following Jesus. You know, just a story from my own personal life. A lot of times, God's people, they they feel a lot of guilt because of their lack of evangelism. They feel a lot of guilt because they don't share the gospel with as many people as they would like, or maybe they don't ever share the gospel. Let me tell you what I found in my life is that when you're seeking to honor Christ in all of your circumstances in life, you won't have to look for people to share the gospel with. They're going to come to you. They're going to come to you. Now, I'm a, I'm a pastor. I spend all my time around church people. I don't get a lot of opportunities unless I make them happen to share the gospel with people outside the walls of the church. And until earlier this year, I was able to, to join a gym through the recommendation of somebody in the church to me And I made it my goal when I went in there that I was going to honor Christ at this gym and that everybody in this gym was going to know who I am, what I do, and I am following Jesus. And I did that. My first day, everybody in that gym knows that I'm the pastor at Arbor Heights Bible Church in Douglasville, Georgia. And I want you to understand the amazing thing that has happened in the seven months since I've been going there. I have had no less than eight to ten Gospel conversations with people who are never going to walk into a church. And I did not approach a single one of them. Not one of them. Just from telling them who I am, loving on them, finding out about them. I know where they all work. I know the names of their wives and children. I know what their goals in life are. I know about them. I've gotten to know them. And they, they see the way that, that I am trying to live. And this is not just me tooting my horn. I'm just trying to be an example to you. I've certainly failed at this many times in my life. But there was one day that we finished working out and, and, and I was standing on the wall just having a conversation about who knows what. And a man walked over to me and he said, Hey, where do you go to church at? I want you to know that my wife and I, We have not been to church since we've been married. It's probably been 20 years since I've walked into a door of a church. I wasn't raised up in church or anything like that, and we've had some bad experiences. But he said, I want to know where you go to church. And I told him, he said, wow, just so happens, I live literally two minutes from where you go to church. And I want you to know that that family has been coming to Arbor Heights Bible Church almost every Sunday since. Hadn't been in church in 20 years. I didn't approach him. He approached me. But I've literally sat on the ground in the gym and had an hour-long gospel conversation with a guy who hasn't been the church since he was a teenager. I didn't approach him. He approached me. It's amazing how when you're simply trying to pursue Christ in every aspect of your life, God opens opportunities for you. You don't even have to seek them. This is what it is, folks, to pursue Christ. And again... I hate using that as an example because I don't want everybody looking at me like uh, one thing or the other because I have failed at this so many times. So many times. I've had opportunities where I kept my mouth closed and didn't open it. But what we want to do is forget those failures that lie behind. Push forward to what lies ahead. And my goal is to live for Jesus. To submit my life to Jesus just as we see in this example of Paul, which is exactly what he says. He tells us to follow the right examples. Verse 17, join in following my example and look for those who walk according to the pattern that you have in us. Us could be also Epaphroditus and Timothy, who he uses in chapter 2 as an example of godliness, but anyone. This is why we did the Puritan Conference, by the way. We, We didn't do the Puritan Conference so that I could tell you some facts about Jonathan Edwards and John Bunyan and John Owen and whoever else. We did the Puritan conference so that we could see the strengths of the Puritans and how we could follow their example in pursuing Christ. That was the goal. This is what he is after here. Brothers, join in following my example. Now that's an intimidating thing to say. Does anybody want to get up here this morning and say, be like me? Isn't that scary? Well, this is where we need to understand the context. He's already told us he's not perfect, hasn't he? What's he calling us to imitate? He's calling us to imitate his life of pursuit. His life of pursuit, not his perfection. He's not there. He's already told us. So what we want to be able to look at our elders and the other leadership within our church and the godly women, the mature women in our church, we want to say, not really that my goal is to be like them. My goal is to pursue Christ like them. That's the goal. You see, folks, we want to imitate Christ, but that's not attainable in this life. I'm never going to be like Jesus in this life. We can wear what would Jesus do bracelets all we want to. I'm never going to be like Jesus in this life, but I can be like Paul. I can be like Epaphroditus. I can be like Timothy. I can be like the Puritans. I can be like these men and women who are in that pursuit, not perfectly, but in that pursuit of Christ. We want to follow those examples. We want to put our eyes on those that we can look to as people who are seeking after Christ. But then he says, we want to avoid the alternative. Doesn't he? Verse 18, he says, there are other examples out there. There are many who walk of whom I've often told you, I'm, I'm crying as I tell you this. My heart breaks for them. My heart breaks for people who are following after them. They are enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their stomach. Their glory is their shame. They set their thoughts on these earthly things. Paul says, I want you to follow my example and the, the example that you have in us and not their example. They walk as enemies of the cross of Christ because they are living a life of licentiousness. They may claim to be believers, but they are living a life of worldliness. So no matter what they claim, they're actually enemies of the cross of Christ. They repudiate the meaning of the cross of Christ, which is not only that my sins have been taken away, but in Christ Jesus and the power of His death and resurrection and my union with Him, I also have power over my sin as well. So if I'm going to say I know Christ, but I'm going to live as a libertine, as these people have been called. Well, I'm actually opposed to the gospel of Christ. I'm opposed to the cross of Christ. I'm an enemy of the cross of Christ. That's what these people are doing. He describes them as their God is their stomach. In other words, their God is their pleasure. Do we see people who worship the God of pleasure? Do we... Do we see examples of people who live for what brings pleasure? That's their goal. They glory in their shame. In other words, they boast about the things they should be ashamed of. Do we see people in our world today who boast in something for which they should be ashamed? Shame in our conference is disappearing. And our world is disappearing. We used to be ashamed of things, but now we promote shameful things. We have pride parades. We glory in all manner of debauchery and deviancy. We call it good. We rejoice in it. And it's not just for that particular group of people. Shame is, especially in a sexual context, the context has completely disappeared from our vocabulary. No one's ashamed to talk about their experiences in that field anymore. No one's, even, no one's ashamed to, to live in a sexual relationship with someone whom they're not married to, or to have multiple partners, or to whatever. There's no shame anymore in it. It's become natural because it's been, it's been normalized through our entertainment and through the things we listen to, the things that we watch. And it's so easy then to fix our eyes upon those things and follow those examples, and that's easy for us to do. And you say, well, why is it that so many Christian people have their attention on those examples and follow after that? And the reason is because that's who we were. In Colossians 3.5, he says, "...put to death what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them." You want to know why those things are so appealing even to us who follow Christ? It's because we once walked in them. And so it's very important then to have our eyes fixed on godly examples... Versus allowing ourselves, whether it be through entertainment or whatever, to have our eyes fixed on sinful examples because our flesh still longs for the God of pleasure. Paul says, in our pursuit of holiness, keep your eyes fixed on those who are pursuing holiness and follow after them. Now finally, he speaks of the importance of being heavenly minded. Verse 20 He says, our citizenship is in heaven. Folks, why would we have our minds fixed on worldly things like the enemies of the cross of Christ when our citizenship is from another world? Our citizenship is in heaven. Richard Sibbs, the great Puritan, said, the life of a Christian is wondrously ruled in this world by the consideration and meditation of the life of another world. We are to live our lives in this world with our minds firmly planted in the world to which we actually belong. Our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, he says, we await a Savior. We eagerly wait for a Savior. The Lord Jesus Christ who is going to come and transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory by His working through which He is able to even subject all things to Himself. In other words, there's an end goal to this pursuit. When Christ comes, this hoped for, this pursuit of ours will be over and finally on that day we will be like Jesus. We'll be like Him. 1 John 3.2, Beloved... We are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when He appears we will be like Him, for we will see Him as He is. That's our goal now, and on that day it's going to happen. So we keep our eyes fixed there now. We await Jesus now. We live our lives with with a view to His coming. And when we do that, 1 John 3 3 says, everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as He is pure. That's how we pursue this life of holiness, by looking to that time when He is going to come again. We have our eyes fixed on heaven. Fixed on heaven. Fixed on Jesus. Again, what's our goals? What are we living for? Who are we living for? Now we have to finish with chapter 4 verse 1. This is so important. Chapter divisions in your Bibles, by the way, when the Apostle wrote this letter, he did not finish with chapter or verse 21 and then write a big four and verse 1. He didn't do that. This was in, inserted later. So I, a lot of times you need to ignore chapter divisions as you read. Whenever you see the word therefore, have you taught them this rule of hermeneutics? Whenever you see the word therefore, you have to look to see what this therefore is. Therefore, that's right. This is a conclusion statement to what he has been saying. Isn't that correct? So he says, with all this in mind, therefore, my brothers, love and longed for, my joy and my crown, in this way stand firm in the Lord. Now we have to finish in verse 1 because we have to focus our attention on those three words. You say, well, there's a lot more than three words. In chapter 4, verse 1, you're right. But there's three words that stand out to us that we must pay attention to. What are those three words? In the Lord. In the Lord. Now, I have been talking to you about the importance of pursuing Christlikeness and holiness. And if you're like me, you listen to a message like this, and you're starting to think of every area in your life that isn't subject to the Lordship of Christ. You're thinking about your failures. You're already thinking about those things that lie behind. You're not pressing forward a lot lies ahead. Maybe you're experiencing some guilt. Hopefully, it's Holy Spirit conviction and not guilt. There is a godly sorrow that leads to repentance, 2 Corinthians tells us. But what we have a tendency to do is hear sermons like this and read texts like this and if we're not careful, as we said earlier, we pick the burden back up and we put it on our backs again. And we say, if I'm going to be like Jesus, I must pull myself up and determine in my mind from today on, I'm going to be like Jesus. This is what we do. This is our nature. We think if we're going to do something, we've got to do it. We've got to get it done. Why do you think that every religion in the world outside of Christianity has a works-based, a performance-based system to it? Every one of them. Because it is natural to man to believe he has to accomplish something. He has to earn something. But here's the thing. The Christian life is lived in the Lord. We strive in the Lord. We stand firm In the Lord. We are not called to live the the Christian life, striving for this holiness in our own power and in our own ability to resolve to live differently. We saw this yesterday as Jonathan Edwards was beginning to, to list his resolutions for how he wanted to live. How did he introduce it? He said, I'm not a fool. I know I can't do this in my power or strength. And so my prayer is that the Holy Spirit would help me to keep these resolutions. And so we go back to chapter 2 and verse 12, and I read this to you earlier. He said, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. What does he say? Work out your own salvation in fear and trembling. He calls the Christian to work. To work hard. To stretch out. To strain. To press on. But if you read verse 12 without verse 13, you've missed it. Because verse 13 says, For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. Where does my work in the Christian life come from? It comes from God's work within me. God is the one who empowers us, who strengthens us that we might run this race for Him. I can't do this. And, and, and I'm going to fail many times at it. I need the power of God at work within me to produce this type of work. I need His strength. In Ephesians 6 verse 10, he says, Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. That's the Christian life. Be strong in the Lord. It's not about our muscles. It's not about our resolve. It's not about our our ability to to pursue something. It's about leaning into Christ and resting in His strength and living in this way. And it's so important. And we also must come back to the gospel with it. We must come back to the gospel. Because, folks, we have such, such a tendency to put ourselves back under the law And here's what we'll do. We'll leave here today and we'll think about all these things we want to do and and we want to pursue Christ and we want to run after Him like Paul does here. And we'll start putting these things out there to be achievements. And we'll start measuring our status with God on the basis of whether or not we're hitting these goals. And we'll start thinking to ourselves, well, I failed and so God must not be pleased with me today. How many of you ever go to bed at night and you are worried, you are afraid, you're crying perhaps... You're despaired because you think you are somehow out of favor with God, that God is displeased with you because of the way in which you live that day. Well, I want to reassure your hearts today that in your pursuit of the Christian life, you're going to fail many times. And I want you to understand that no matter how many times you fail, that God's affection towards you never changes. It never changes. If you leave here today and you walk next door to the Dollar General and you put on your best George Whitfield impersonation and you begin preaching the gospel in Dollar General and everyone over there comes to repentance and you've led a massive revival at the Myrtle Beach Dollar General, what a great story that would be. We're going we're to advance to Walmart next. You go to bed tonight and you think, Wow! God must really be pleased with me today. Look what I did. And then tomorrow, you get up and there's just a heavy weight of temptation on your shoulders. You turn on that computer and you go somewhere that you know you shouldn't go. Or perhaps you're tempted in some other area, and you do this other thing that you know you shouldn't do. And then you go to bed that night, tomorrow night, and you think, wow, God must really be displeased with me today. He was so pleased with me yesterday because I preached his gospel. He was so impressed with me yesterday. And today, he is unimpressed with me. Today. He must be displeased with me. He must be angry with me. I must have fallen out of favor with God for the way that I acted. Folks, if that's the way you believe God looks at you, you have never understood who God is and you have never understood the gospel. I want you to understand one truth very clearly. If you are in Christ Jesus, God loves you today just like He loves His own Son, Jesus. That God views you today just as He views the Lord Jesus Christ. That can never change. It can never be undone. Who shall lay any charge against God's elect? Who can accuse God's elect of anything? For it is God who justifies... Christ has died, the apostle writes there in Romans chapter 8. And therefore, right now, we stand justified in the sight of God. And there is nothing that separates us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. God does not love you more on a day of your great success. He doesn't love you less on a day of your great failure. He always loves you with a perfect, unchangeable, immeasurable, incomparable love. Nothing can undo it because you have been united to Jesus Christ. You cannot live your life in legalism. Paul had not traded his legalistic Judaism for legalistic Christianity. Paul is living the Christian life in the Lord and the strength of the Lord, and he's also living it with the grace of God and the gospel at the forefront of his eyes so that whether he fails or whether he succeeds, whether he accomplishes what he hopes to accomplish, or whether he has a great fall, he understands that he rests in the finished work of Jesus Christ, and so do you. So do you. This is the Christian work, folks. This is the Christian life. This is how it's lived. We live it by grace. For I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. In the life which I now live in the faith, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave Himself for me. That's the Christian life. It is lived in and through Christ. As you pursue this holiness, you need to be reminding yourself of this all the time. Well, the Apostle Paul reached the end of his life, and you are aware of what he said. 2 Timothy 4.7 He says, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all those who have loved His appearing. I finished the race. I ran it. And now there is a crown of righteousness that is reserved for me and all who are waiting for the coming of the Lord. Folks, that's what we want our legacy to be, isn't it? that we ran the race. John MacArthur tells of a marker that is placed at the foot of one of the Swiss Alps. The marker honors a man who fell to his death attempting to climb the Alps. The marker gives the man's name and, and then it adds this statement. He died climbing. He died climbing. It would be a great thing if that was written on every one of our grave markers, that we died climbing. We died pursuing Jesus. And now, we could say with John Owen as we saw yesterday, now I'm going to see that glory in a way that I have never been able to at any time in my life. Let's pray. Lord, this is our desire. We want to climb. We want to pursue You, but we want to do it in Your strength. We want to do it with Your gospel at the forefront of our minds and our hearts, recognizing that we're going to fail, and yet Christ has died. All of my sin has been paid for. It's all been carried away. I stand forgiven at the cross. I am righteous for all time because I am in union with You, our Lord Jesus. Help everyone here today to remember that, but let that be the motivator. We don't pursue uh, this Christian life. We don't pursue being more like You, Lord Jesus, out of fear of judgment. No. For there is no condemnation for us. We do it motivated by Your grace, by Your love that's been poured out on us in Christ. And so help us, Lord, to live this life because we love You. We want to be like You. We want to serve You. Lord, work within our hearts today to will and to do for Your good pleasure. Thank You for our time that we have had this weekend, Lord, I just ask that You would accomplish Your purpose through what's been said, even the weakness of my presentations, Lord, that You would accomplish Your great work through the presentation of Your Word and the examples that we have seen this week, that we truly might be more like You and that that would be the pursuit of our lives. I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.